Thank you for joining the Capital Church Podcast. We believe that Jesus is for you and that through these expressions of our community, you will find hope, healing, and belonging. To learn more, join us live every week online and visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at capitalchurch.co. You may be seated. Joel clearly has an outsized view of his athletic ability. Um, how many excited to be here today? Come on. How many excited to be in the house of the Lord? All right, turn to your neighbor and say, man, I'm so glad you made it here this morning or this afternoon, whatever time it is. All right, turn to your other neighbor and say, go Gonzaga. Let's go. You can still be a Bronco fan and still root for the Zags. All right? All right, well, are you excited to be here? Come on. How many of you were here last week? Okay, how many of you were blessed by Pastor Jude's message? Man, we were really blessed by his word to us. And uh, we're, we're just blessed to have so many wonderful teachers in our house and outside of our house. Come on, somebody. It's just... We're, we're spoiled, and um, I'm so glad that we have people who love Jesus, people full of integrity, who bring the Word of God to us every single week. So can you give it up for our teaching team and Pastor Jude? And So today I'm going to be talking about Jesus and beauty. Jesus, beauty, and suffering. Jesus, beauty. Everyone say beauty. beauty. And suffering. All right. Uh, how many of you like stories? Like five of you. All right. Uh, so if you, well, I'll start here. How many, how many parents do we have here? Okay, we have many parents. You probably know this with your children, right? If you, don't, if you don't have kids, you probably don't understand this. But when your children don't get sleep, they turn into feral animals, right? Come on. Can I get a witness? Right? They become irrational. Like this week, we, my, my kids didn't sleep for, uh, man, several nights. We were trying to figure out, my wife and I were trying to figure out what in the world is going on. We're casting out devils. We're giving them sleep medication. It's all the homeopathic stuff, right? Um, oils and, you know, it's just like we're trying everything and nothing is working. And then there was one particular day, we just had a slog of a day. And I remember we were in our, in our uh, church van or whatever we call it, and we're driving our kids around. And I'm, I turned to my wife and I'm like, babe, I mean, we got some badgers in the back of the car, right? And we have the sweetest children in the world, but when they're tired, they just lose their mind. So this one particular day, as I mentioned, it was a slog. My wife and I, we were tired. We were exhausted. Our baby wavy, everyone say baby wavy. She's two years old. She's the sweetest girl in the world, but when she doesn't get any sleep, she turns into a tyrant. And so she was acting up. Parents, you know what I'm talking about? She's acting up. She's saying some things she shouldn't be saying, doing some things she shouldn't be doing. And so my wife turned to her and said, hey, baby wavy, if you don't stop, you're going to get time out. And then she turned to my wife and she said, no, you get time out. And then I turned over and I'm like, babe, she gets that from you, right? And then it was funny, just a couple minutes go by and we, we kind of dealt with the situation. And uh, I, I leaned back and I said, hey, wave, um, do you love daddy? She looks at me and she goes, nope. <laughs> and then to put salt in my wounds, right, for an hour, no joke. She intones, she's almost seeing this. Me don't love daddy, me don't love daddy. I'm like, oh my God, we're raising a devil child. She's the sweetest little girl, but it was one of those days. My wife and I were wiped out, so we decided to put the kids in a van to get some Christian chicken at Chick-fil-A. So we go to Chick-fil-A. My wife is on the verge of tears. We're just tired, right? Kids are just, just not listening, and they're fighting, and it's just like death by negotiation, and we're trying to like just figure everything out, and we're like, Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani, God, where are you, right? Have you forsaken us? So, but something remarkable happened. We turned to, to our left. We were like facing the south. And over the foothills, I don't know if you saw it, we saw this dramatic rainbow. 
And it was so dramatic, dramatic because it was juxtaposed with right next to it, this kind of brooding, ferocious formation of clouds. And then on the horizon to the left of that, you had the sun just kind of sitting there. It, it seemed enhanced because light was being refracted everywhere. And so it seemed like the sun was shooting out chunks of light particles. And we all stopped. Everyone would say stopped. We all stopped and we gazed at the rainbow. Our kids were like, mama, rainbow, rainbow. And we finally had some peace. And we're like, oh my God, this is amazing. We took some pictures and we were overwhelmed with a sense of wonder. Have you ever experienced that before? And we're thanking God for beauty. And we felt like God was saying, okay, yes, this is a hard season and it's going to suck for the next five years, but you will get through it because I don't know how, how you got seven children because anyway, I'm just, anyways, the Holy Spirit talks to me in weird ways. Um, and then the rainbow leaves and then the war comes back, you know? So today I want to talk about, because beauty is transient, but I do want to talk about a theology of beauty. Everyone say beauty. Uh, one artist, one theologian said this, we need beauty to feed our souls. Why is that? Well, it's a universal reality that everyone on this planet is hardwired for beauty. We need, in other words, we need more than food and shelter to survive. Come on, somebody. We need more than food and shelter to survive. Can I get an amen? amen. I thought we were an amening church. We need more than food and shelter and some clothes to survive. This is, and this is not just a first world issue. Like everyone is hardwired for beauty. We need beauty. Kyrie, we need to see Kyrie score 63 points more often. Can I get an amen? We need St. Peter's on St. Patrick's Day to defeat the Kentucky Wildcats more often. Can I get an amen? We need more dramatic mountain landscapes to go to and camp with the threat of bears devouring us because you campers are weird. <laughs> beauty, beauty, we're made for it. Please hear what I'm saying today. You're made for it. You're hardwired for it. You're biologically designed by God for beauty. So I want to talk about beauty and then I want to then go into a, a quick theological talk on suffering and then we'll just um, end with um, a lot of prayer, okay? So the biblical worldview on beauty is this. God has created something other than himself. We call this creation out of overflowing generous love. Psalm 24 says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, right? It's not, it's not the Democrats. It's not the Republicans. We're talking about creation now. It's not their sole purpose to carve up the world. They don't own it. It's not their property. We don't own it. The earth is whose? It's the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Beauty is not just some like side project that lies outside the range of who God is and how he works in our lives and within the cosmos itself. Beauty, and I'm going to make the argument here pretty quick, is at the heart of what God does. Psalm 50 verse 10 says that God owns every beast of the field, every cattle on a thousand hills. It's all God. So creation, everyone say creation. creation. Creation is made out of this overflowing, generous love of the creator. It is something other than God, which leads us to my second point in this biblical worldview on beauty. The world then, first, before it's anything else, is good. Before it's anything else, it is good. So I'm giving you good doctrine, good theology here this morning. Genesis 1, 26 through 28 tells us that at, at the end, ex post facto, the end of this dramatic act of creation we find in Genesis chapter 1, God looks over what he made and what does he say? In the Hebrew it says it's very, very good. As Tracy mentioned a couple weeks ago, you could translate that word. It is very, very beautiful. We find out that not only is this world good and made by a good and generous creator, this world is also a cosmic temple. We find in Isaiah chapter 6, Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 14, Psalm chapter 72, that God's desire, his intent, is to flood the cosmos with his healing, glorious presence. God, in other words, wants to inhabit, inhabit 
this creation with his healing, glorious, beautiful presence. Can I get an amen? amen. Can I get an amen? amen? And then we come to the third point of this biblical worldview on beauty. Beauty, as defined, is this haunting sense of wonder pointing us not to some, in the words of one author, to this evolutionary ideal. It's, it's out there in the world that beauty is arbitrary, right? It's illusory. Right? It's, it's, it's a part of this evolutionary narrative that beauty helps us to find a mate. It helps us to hunt prey and to escape from danger. Well, the Bible fundamentally disagrees with the evolutionary ideal that beauty just simply helps us to mate with each other. Can I get an amen to that? We are more than animals. Can I get an amen to that? We're more than just atoms and molecules that just have no rhyme or reason. And we're just basically accidents floating around in this forlorn universe. Amen, people. Beauty, in other words, according to the biblical worldview, points us to the strange and living presence of God in our world. Beauty, I'll say it again, points us to the strange and living presence of God in our world. World. Again, I want to say it emphatically. We are hardwired for beauty in all of its forms. The reason why we should design beautiful homes is because God is the one who designed beauty. The reason why we should live beautiful lives is because God is the author of beauty. The reason why God paints the sky, come on, somebody with extravagant colors is because God, not some evolutionary mechanistic process of chance, but God is the author of refracted light, wherein we see the full spectrum of colors in the sky. Psalm, some of you don't believe me, but Psalm chapter 19 says this, uh, one through uh, two, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. In other words, God speaks to us through beauty. The beauty that we experience in life is not some arbitrary thing. It's God designed uh, reality wherein God can speak into our mind and into our hearts. Acts chapter 14, 15 through 17, Paul and Barnabas go to Lystra and they preach the hell out of everybody. And at the end, they're coming to Paul and Barnabas and they're like worshiping them. And Paul says, no, 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 please stop. And he says this in verse 15, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Verse 17, yet he did not leave himself without witness for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Satisfying your, your hearts with food and gladness. Food can be beautiful. Come on, somebody. It is God who's designed beauty to satisfy your heart. Let me say this again. We need beauty to feed our souls. Beauty is not just for the artisan. Beauty is not just for the poet smoking a cigar in some cafe, right? Writing, like, writing poetry. Beauty is something that the follower of Jesus is called to embody in their life. And Tracy talked about this uh, a couple of weeks ago. Acts chapter 17, 26 through 28. Paul goes to uh, the Greeks and he says this. He's sermonizing. And in verse 26, he says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. For, I love this, in him, we live, we move, and have our... Paul's quoting pagan philosophy and poetry to underscore the reality that it's not about you and I inducting our way up to God or reasoning our way up to God, but it is God who comes to us, for we are indeed his offspring. God is present within creation, and he speaks to us 
through the beauty of creation and through the beauty of cultural artifacts by which we make. Can I get an amen to that? So beauty, and this is just basic, theologians call this general revelation, engulfs us in a sense of transcendence as a, please hear me, as a signpost pointing us to the living and loving God of the universe. Beauty is not abstract. Can I get an amen? Beauty is God whispering, or in the words of my professor, wooing us, I'll say whispering to us in a fractured and complicated world. When I saw that dramatic rainbow and I saw light refracted everywhere and my kids calmed down, I I had my heart softened and I could hear God whisper to me. It's going to be all right, Chris. We, in other words, we need more beauty in our world. It's funny, I'm having a conversation with my um, oldest son, Wesley, and he's a smart kid. He's asking a lot of different questions. So a couple nights ago, we had a little Bible time and it was Quincy and Wesley and we're kind of going back and forth and we were talking about uh, a particular passage in the Bible and Wesley asked me this question. Okay, uh, dad, if God is so real, why doesn't he show himself to me? It's a great question. And then Quincy just, I mean, I had to tell, hey, Q, shut up. But anyway, he goes, uh, Wesley, you're such a bad Christian, right? And I'm like, Q, you are such a bad Christian. And I, and I, and I think here's, the, and this is such, the, such, such an important point. I think as Christians, we need to ask these questions. Why does God have to whisper to us through creation and beauty in which we call general revelation? Why does God have to speak, to speak to us, woo us through a dramatic rainbow or maybe a painting or maybe a beautiful book written by a Christian or maybe even a non-Christian which harmonizes with what we find in the Bible? Because if you don't know this, all truth is God's truth. Why does God have to whisper? Why can't he shout? Why can't he just show himself to everybody? Well, the first, and this is what I told my son, and the, I think the first reason why God does not show himself, because we would all explode. <laughs> Have you ever seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? They open up, if, if you're too young, right, you, you're not going to get this, but they open up the Ark of the Covenant, and what happens? The, the glory of God comes out as weird ghosts, right? And everyone's face melts off. <laughs> you want to keep your face Don't ask God to show his full self to you. Right? Number one, you can't handle God. God has to self-limit his revelation to you because you would explode into tiny little particles. But number two, the reason why God whispers to us and doesn't show all of himself to us is because would you honestly respond to him in an appropriate fashion? Because we find in the book of Exodus that God comes down on a mountain called Mount Sinai. We have a theophany and the top of the summit is ablaze with fire. And the people of God, Israel, looked to Moses and said, hey, Moses, how about you go up? We'll stay down here. And yet, if you don't know the narrative, it's God wanted the whole nation to come up. And yet the nation was like, no, 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 no. Moses, you, you represent us. You go up to the, the summit, right? So God has to whisper to us in, in our lives and woo us in a variety of different ways because we probably wouldn't respond appropriately. Can I get any man to that? And finally, the reason why God whispers through beauty and the, the signs that we find in creation is because a loving God will never violate the character of love. God will never force you to choose him by overriding your will, by just showing himself and saying, hey, I'm God, serve me now, right? God doesn't do that. God will never violate the character of the universe. He has given us authentic freedom. A loving God will always honor love. So here's the question. I wish I could talk more about beauty, but I can't. But the question that we have to ask is, okay, so can we honestly talk about beauty when there's so much suffering in our world? 
Let's be honest. Can we be honest? I mean, should we honestly be talking about beauty today as we've just come out of a once in a generation pandemic? Some of you might be thinking, Chris, why are we talking about beauty when Europe is like in full-blown war, right? Or at least on the verge of war, right? We have aggressors and we have bad actors and we have this, this political refugee crisis that is ongoing and it's growing. Uh, should we really talk about beauty, right? We're, I just read an article that now some analysts are saying that uh, there's a 40% 40, 40 chance that NATO and Russia will engage in a nuclear war. Or like, oh my God, we just got out of a pandemic. Can we have a break, Lord? <laughs> so can we really talk about beauty when there's so much suffering in this world? In fact, suffering and sorrow seems to be shot through all of creation. I'm convinced that the news media is gonna come out like they did in 2020 and start talking about aliens again. I mean, it's just like, it's just bad news after bad news after bad news. So how do we harmonize beauty with the suffering and the sorrow that we all experience? Well, let me just say this really quick. Suffering is the beauty like uh, four toddlers are to a clean house. Because <laughs> as I'm talking about beauty, I know what you're thinking, because this is what I'd be thinking. I'd be thinking about how my life sucks. Chris, you're talking about the theology of beauty. God created this something other than himself. Uh, we call it creation, yada, yada, yada. And I got some of it. And that God wants us to be a part of this beauty project in this world. But man, I am just going through so much suffering. That doesn't even make sense. It's counterintuitive. Well, suffering is the beauty like four toddlers are to a clean house. One moment, the house is clean. We'll call that beauty. The next, it's a stinking accumulation of crumbs, dirt, and poop-filled diapers. That's what suffering does to our lives. It, it begins to distort our, our perception, our views of reality, of creation, of ourselves, of God, the future, the present, the past. Can I get an amen to that? So how do we harmonize beauty and suffering? Because beauty is shot through in our world as is um, suffering. One philosopher said that one cannot write poetry after Auschwitz. He's basically saying because of suffering, beauty is absolutely meaningless. Do we believe that? No, of course not. But how do we reconcile those two? I remember it was 2016, and my wife and I, on a Sunday, it was a June, beautiful day. We had found out eight weeks before-ish that we were pregnant. We had been trying to get pregnant for 10 years. We had adopted our oldest three children. We were so content and blessed with three. I was so content. Did I say that? <laughs> I was so content with three. But my wife just knew we were going to get pregnant again. We had tried and tried and tried and tried for a decade. And we had found out about eight weeks before this, this Sunday where we were, my wife and I would be transitioning the lead role uh, over this church uh, that we were pregnant. Later that day after we announced that we were pregnant, maybe later that evening, my wife felt something different in her stomach and like, you know, mother's intuition, she felt like there was something wrong. She felt this pain in her stomach, took her to um, the ER. And then I think it was the next morning we found out that we had lost the baby. It was after 10 years, 10 years of wanting to get pregnant and we get pregnant and then it's taken away from us. And I love my wife. My wife has taught me so much through about suffering and how to handle it. She went to the Lord and she brought her complaints, and I'm gonna talk about this here pretty soon, brought her complaints to God and talked through, wrestled with God about why would you take away this beautiful miracle? God gave her a number, and I'll talk about that number, but we were absolutely devastated by the news that we had lost something we had hoped for for 10 years. I remember when I was 17, I was uh, in, in the off-season. I played basketball my whole life. In the off-season, I ran track. And so uh, Monday was hell day. And uh, we were running intervals and 200s. And back then, I was an extraordinary athlete. Can I get an amen? <laughs> I think about those days a lot as I get older. And so we're running intervals, and I just had endurance. I never struggled with endurance. I mean, I just, it wasn't an issue. And so we were running our first 200 I, I couldn't make it past 100. And so I went to my coach. I go, coach, something's wrong. 
I stopped and the, it, it seemed like the earth was spinning on, spinning out of control. I go home, I take a long nap, wake up about five hours, my, the room is swimming. Uh, to make a long story short we, go to the, short, we go to the doctor, we get lab work back and the doctor comes to me and says, you, you are a type one diabetic. I remember being absolutely devastated and I had to ask the question, God, why would you allow something like this? So first, again, just giving you a biblical theology or a biblical worldview on beauty, God created this world good. Can I get an amen? Before anything else, it is absolutely beautiful. God made it good. But we also have suffering. How do we account for suffering? Well, let me just say this really quick. God is not the source of evil. We don't believe in this, this idea of meticulous providence, that God is behind every evil act because God wants to bring every evil act into his glory. We just don't simply believe that. God is not the cause of evil. Amen, people. He's not the cause. Well, what is the cause? Well, the Bible tells us that creation is full of radical evil. Even though it was made good and beautiful, it is full of radical evil and sorrow as a result of human wickedness. We come to Genesis chapter 3, which tells the story of how all of creation is cursed. Everyone would say cursed. It's shot through with a curse as a result of Adam and Eve choosing to decide against God and his wisdom. They make a decision against God. They choose not to trust him and his definition of reality and human life. And all of creation, not just human life, but all of creation is shot through with sorrow and suffering and corruption and death. So one, God made this world beautiful. Two, God whispers to us through beauty. Three, this world is also shot through with suffering as a result of human folly and wickedness. Let me just, as an aside, say this. What I'm not saying is that if you sin once, you will open up a door and you will experience horrible suffering. Can, can I get an amen to that? Well, how do you know, Chris? Well, Job makes the point. He was a righteous man. He was blameless and he still suffered. In fact, his friends operated from a theology of this causal one-on-one -on -one, that if you sin once, it opens the door to catastrophe. And at the end of the book of Job, it is God who rebukes Job's friends. That is not how I work in this universe. Can I get an amen? amen? Exodus chapter 34 tells us, this is the most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible. And I say this all the time. God is gracious and compassionate. He is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Can I get an Amen. God is not some cosmic deity that's going to fly off the handle because you make one bad decision. Now, yes, if you go to Vegas and you do cocaine, bad things are going to probably happen to you. Don't do that. Can I get an amen? You smoke all your life. Some bad things might happen to you. Don't do that. Can I get an amen? Right? So we're not saying that bad things can't happen through sin. What I'm saying is not all sorrow and suffering is the result of sin. Sometimes we could be sinned against, which can cause suffering and sorrow. So how do we uh, address this issue? Where do we go from here? Well, we come to Isaiah chapter 61, 1 through 3. The Gospel of Luke tells us this is the manifesto of Jesus. This is Jesus' manifesto. It's his mission statement. And basically, we have the Gospel in miniature here quoted in Isaiah 61. I want to read it again for you. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Can I get any man to that? He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and opening the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them, I like the literal translation, to give them beauty, everyone say beauty, instead of ashes the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Amen. The heart of the gospel is that God, and please hear me, is that what God specializes in is taking the ashes of your life, the sorrow and the suffering and even the sin that you've committed or the sin that's been committed to you, and God specializes in making all things beautiful. Usually we think that beauty, as I mentioned before, is like a side project. Like God on the side moonlights in beauty projects. 
right? Beauty is for, as I mentioned before, for the artisan, it's for the poet, it's for the writer, it's for the, it's for the creatives. No, beauty is something that is designed for God to speak to us. It's, it's woven in the very fabric of who we are. We need beauty and we're called to embody beauty in our lives. So this passage in Isaiah 61 simply says, this isn't something, beauty that is, beauty out of ashes, is not something that God does on the side every now and then. Rather, it is the very heart of the good news of Jesus. It's what Jesus does characteristically all the time. He takes ashes and he makes them beautiful. Jesus takes that diagnosis, we'll call that ashes, and turns it into a beautiful story. And I'm not trying to be insensitive to anybody here and what you've gone through. And I want to be sensitive to obviously the suffering and sorrow that some people are going through right now. I just want to say this to encourage you that Jesus takes the sorrow of being betrayed and rejected in the anxiety and he makes a beautiful story out of it. Jesus takes the loss of that loved one and he brings healing and hope into your life. Man, this is the heart of the good news. I thought I was in a Pentecostal church or a charismatic church that said amen every now and then. That's your cue to say amen. Ephesians 2 says you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We've preached this so many times. This word workmanship means that you are God's poem. He's writing your story. He's taking all the bits, all the idiosyncrasies, all the defeats, all the failures, all the sins, all the ashes, all the sorrow and suffering, even the good things. And he's writing your story for his glory. God is not a divine narcissist that just wants somehow to create the world and everyone just simply to worship him. Yes, God wants your worship, but God wants to take your story and he wants to make it beautiful because God is the God of everlasting love. So the question is, how does God do this? How does God take the ashes of our life and turn them into beauty? How does God make beautiful things out of the ugliness or the brutalism of my life? Well, number one, God chose and chooses, we find this in the Old Testament, to inhabit our sin-polluted universe and all of its complexities in order to rescue us. Please hear that. God willingly volunteered to inhabit the sin-polluted universe and all of its complexities and stresses and anxieties and despair and failure in order to rescue it. We find in the second half of Exodus, I'm going to explain this point here quickly, but I just want to say something on the, on, on the aside. The second half of the book of Exodus is all about the construction of the tabernacle. We find in Exodus chapter 25 that God delights, it's fascinating, God delights in beauty. In fact, the tabernacle is God's response to human wickedness and folly and failure and sorrow and shame. So the last part of Exodus, God is giving instructions to Moses to build this tabernacle so he can meet with his people. Exodus 25, one through nine says this, God comes to Moses and says, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen, goat's hair, right? I don't know how goat's hair would be a part of this, but let's, whatever. Tan, ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onk stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastplate, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell, could you say that last clause? That I may dwell in their midst exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. It seems like God really cares about furniture. He's like this grand architect and he's designing this house. And as you look at the description of this house, it's not a shabby, rundown shack. 
Think about the children of Israel. They're in this dark apocalyptic wilderness and God is giving them a, de- a beautiful design wherein God can meet with his people. In other words, when you look at the tabernacle, you have to associate the tabernacle with God's delight in beauty. God delights in beauty. And God also delights in meeting with his people. So think about the vivid colors in that passage that we just read. The rich, resplendent decoration of furniture. Clearly, God is saying something about himself as he speaks to Moses about his dream and intent to meet with his people. So Moses, Moses is met by God and God meets with his people in their sorrow, in their shame. And what does he do? He blesses them. That's the entire logic of Leviticus. And everybody in this room probably hates reading through Leviticus. I just summed it up up for you. God is the one who builds a a beautiful tabernacle wherein he can meet with his people. It's not God's people who come up to God. It's God who comes to his people and meets with them. In fact, in Exodus chapter 32, we have the notorious idolatry scene where God's people, what do they do? They build a golden calf. Moses is ascended to the top of the, the summit. It's a fiery like structure. Moses hasn't come down. And so Israel starts to complain. And so they decide, they go to Aaron and they decide to build this, this calf and they start worshiping this calf. God gets really angry. Why? Because he loves his people. My professor tells me this, this whole story is kind of like it's, it's God entering into a covenant with his people, Right? That God is reconstituting these slaves and he's turning them into a nation of kings and priests. In other words, this is a marriage ceremony. And as my professor tells me, it's like someone, it's like a couple recently got married and they go on their honeymoon. They go to Maui, they go to Disney World, then they go to Italy. And finally in Italy, which would be amazing. Can I get an amen to that? They come to Italy and one of the spouses decides to go clubbing and then sleeps with a couple people and comes back and says, ah, hey, I slept with a couple people. What should be the appropriate response of the betrayed spouse? Anger. No? Yes. This is not a trick question. Everyone say, anger. Right? Why? Because you would think they would work from the idea that they actually love this person. This person has betrayed them. We find that God is angry, yet God still intends to meet with golden calf worshipers. As he builds this beautifully designed structure. Psalm 96 verse 1 says, strength and beauty are in your sanctuary. The Hebrew word for beauty in Psalm 96 is used in Exodus 28.2 and Exodus 28.40 when God commands Moses to make the priest garments. In other words, the tabernacle is beautiful. Come on, the tabernacle is beautiful. The furniture is beautiful. The priest's garments are beautiful. Beauty is woven into the drama of rescue and salvation. It is not a side project, again, of some eccentric artisan who's smoking a cigar in a French cafe, okay? And then John tells us in his prologue that the word became flesh. Everyone say flesh. And he tabernacled among us. Tabernacle. Remember, tabernacle and beauty are inextricably linked. John is saying that this story of Jesus becoming flesh and tabernacling among us is a story about beauty. God becoming flesh. Is there anything more beautiful than that? God doesn't, in other words, take shortcuts. He doesn't cheat, right? God, in other words, uh, in Jesus decides to tell the story of the world, not from without it or out of it, but from within it. Jesus is telling the story of the world, the drama of salvation and rescue and deliverance, not from without creation, as if God is somehow out there, but God becomes flesh, becomes human, enters the complexity and the sorrow and the suffering of our human existence, takes it on, and then he blesses us. 
Jesus is the faithful high priest. We find this in Hebrews chapter one through two. As the, po as the as poet, the author of Hebrews says that in the last days, God has spoken through his son, Jesus. Jesus is the divine radiant imprint of God's glory. And it's through his word that the universe is sustained through his word, the word of his power, the universe is sustained. And then in Hebrews chapter two, it says that God then became flesh in Jesus and Jesus tasted death for everyone. So what is John saying? John is saying God in Jesus is taking responsibility for the sin and suffering of creation caused by us. Jesus, first service was shouting me down at this point, so I'm waiting for it. Jesus, in other words, will suffer on our behalf and he will go through death and come out the other side, making all things new and beautiful. This is how God takes the ashes of our life and makes it beautiful. He absorbs the pain and the shame and the suffering and the sin and the failure. And then he says, I know you, I see you, and I bless you. And then we come to John chapter 20 as we close. It's a busy scene. We have everyone running around. Joel thinks he's faster than me, right? It's like, what's going on here? People are running all around. They're panicked. Uh, there's death, there's sorrow. In fact, John is making a very clear point when he writes in verse one that death still frames the world. But then he quickly segues into this beautiful, beautiful statement. John states, it was the first day of the week. Everyone say the first day of the week. It was the first day of the week. In other words, it was the eighth day. As Pastor Jude talked about it last week, John loves the number seven. He uses it all the time. There are seven signs. There are seven great I am statements of Jesus. The question that we have to ask ourselves, why does John love the number seven? Is it because it just simply means completion and perfection? No, part of it, yes. But what John is telling us in his prologue is that he's writing a new Genesis story. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. What does that sound like? That sounds like Genesis chapter one. In the beginning was God. Come on, somebody. And then John tells us that Jesus saw the work of his father and he did the work of his father on day one, two, three, four, five, and six. We know that on day six, Pilate, what does he say to Jesus in front of the crowd? He says, here is the man. It is God in the original creation story wherein man and humans are made on the sixth day. We find that God rested on the seventh day. It is Jesus in his death who rested on the seventh day, which was a Saturday. Then we come to an early Sunday morning. Are you with me? Early Sunday morning is now the first day of the week. John is now taking seven and he's adding another number, eight. Eight is a number of new beginnings. This is not just the seventh day of the week. This is not just the first day of the week. This is the eighth day, which means, John is telling us, this is a brand new world. This world that is framed by death and sorrow and war and sickness and bad diagnosis and betrayal and suffering and anxiety and mental health problems. Yes, it's still framed by that, but it is God who comes in the midst of that, incarnates into flesh, absorbs that, and then turns the entire will of history on its axis towards new creation. This is the first day of the week. In other words, new life is bursting out in the middle of a world framed by death and sorrow. This means that in Jesus, out of the ashes, beauty always emerges. This means that, yes, you've gone through sorrow and suffering. Yes, you've been betrayed by a spouse. Yes, you are sick in your body, maybe chronically so. But the good news is, is that sickness and that betrayal and that sorrow and that suffering is not the final word over your life. The final word over your life 
is God's word over you. And it's a word of faithfulness and love and blessing and grace and hope and healing and restoration and renewal and salvation and redemption and transformation. Man, God, in other words, specializes in new creation. What do we call that? We call that beauty. It's beauty. And you and I could have this. We're called to have this. I can't get into it today, but we're called to this vocation of making ugly things beautiful. Tracy talked about it at length a couple of weeks ago. I don't feel the need to talk about it today. We've been given this vocation as kings and priests to partner with the Holy Spirit to make brutal things beautiful things. Okay, so how do we do this? And I'm, I'm closing. I got just a few minutes. I'm not a formulaic guy because I think life is way more complicated than we make it out to be. So I'm going to give you some thoughts, okay? How do we enter into this beauty making process where God takes the ashes of our life, the sorrows of our life and makes things beautiful. The first thing is we have to, when we're suffering and I want to be very sensitive here because some of you are going through some, a really hard season, but we have to learn by the grace of God to connect our suffering to the larger story of Jesus. Always. I mentioned Viktor Frankl many times. He was a psychologist who lived in the concentration camps during World War II. He wrote the book, Man's Search for Meaning. And in this book, he distinguished between those who died early and those who survived in the concentration camps. And he finally deduced as a psychologist, the difference between those who survived and those who did not survive was meaning. Those who lost a sense of meaning, lost a sense of a larger story beyond themselves, got lost in their suffering and they end up just giving up. It was those who had a larger narrative, a bigger story. Even the idea that maybe my wife, who I don't even know where she's at, she could still be alive, so I, ha I have to make it for her. My children are still out there somewhere. I don't even know where they're at. They're in a concentration camp, but they might still be out there. I have to make it as a father. Even that kind of story brought meaning, and it was that meaning that helped People have the resilience to navigate just the horrors of the concentration camp. When we go through suffering, it is absolutely essential to connect our suffering to the larger story of Jesus. What is that? Again, as I said it before, God's word is the last word. God's word is the last word. Amen. Not the doctor's word, God's word. Amen. Not your daughter's word over you. Nope, I don't love you, right? It is God's word. That is the final word over you. Beauty. Beauty, not suffering, is the end game. God will make all things new. God will renew this world. He will transform all of reality and he will wipe away every tear. Christians, we have a hope and we have a future. I say this so many times, but many people think that, man, my best years are behind me, right? We say this all the time. It's an adage. Hey, like, um, I'm, a, I'm a shadow of my former self, right? You look in the yearbook. I looked at my yearbook a couple years ago, and I'm like, oh, my God. I was so much better looking back then, right? We think that. We're a shadow of our former selves. As we get older, we're like, I'm a shadow of our former selves. But as a, Christians, as a Christian, a follower of Jesus, we have to think differently, we're not a shadow of our former self. We're a shadow of our future self. God will make all things new. God will make all things new. All things beautiful. I want to be sensitive here, but when you're going through a very hard time and difficult season and you're trying to process grief and sorrow and shame, the good news is God is there to comfort you. And we should grieve. Can I get an amen? amen? Paul makes it very clear that we are called to grieve, but it's a, it's a grief filled with hope. 
So what I'm not suggesting is that we deny reality. We deny what we're going through. We need to fully embrace what we're going through, but also understand that there's a deeper reality. And that deeper reality is that God, and this is the heart of the gospel, God turns ash heaps into beautiful things. So learn to connect your suffering in the larger story of Jesus. Number two, as you're suffering, here's the thing that I've learned, I've learned from my wife, and she's really taught me this, is that we have to bring our suffering and our complaints to God who suffers with us. I'm gonna sharpen that up. You still with me? I'm almost done. I wanna sharpen up that statement. I wanna say it this way. We just don't pray to God when we suffer. We just don't pray at God when we suffer. We pray with God, with him. God comes, I want you to imagine God coming alongside of you and working with you as you wrestle through the pain and the the sorrow and the hurt and the sense of being overwhelmed, right? God, God wants you to bring that to him. He wants you to process that with him. This is what my wife many years ago learned when she found out that she miscarried. She spent weeks and weeks and weeks wrestling with the question, God, why would you allow this? We, man, we waited for 10 years. And then you take our baby away? God, that's, you're a good God, right? My wife processed this and brought her complaints to God. Let me just say this really quick. I think counselors are so important and we need counselors to help us through grief. Can I get an amen? I think we need good friends and good communities where we can be vulnerable and process our grief. Can I get an amen to that? But I think there's a lost art in the church and that is we usually first go to a friend, which is important before we go to God, the God of the universe, who is the only one who can bring comfort and a sense of purpose to what you're going through. And my wife did this, she did this, she, she brought her complaint to God and she wrestled with God. And in the wrestling, it's, it's amazing. The story is amazing. God said the number two, just said two to my wife. So my wife thought, okay, in two months we'll get pregnant again. And in two months we didn't get pregnant. In fact, it was two years later, 2018. I was again, totally content with three kids. Wasn't thinking about having babies. My wife in the morning woke up. It was about 10 o'clock. It was a beautiful spring day. And she goes, Chris, could you just go to um, Rite Aid and, and give me a pregnancy test. I've done this 50 times. So I'm not thinking anything. I'm like, it's just going to be another one of those things, right? So I went to a place where no one, it was embarrassing. I don't like to get pregnancy tests, you know? So I went to a place that no one knew me. I, I just feel weird, right? Anyways, that's just my personal thing. Got it, brought it home. And then I remember when my wife was upstairs and I was downstairs, or I can't remember the whole story. And I remember screaming with delight. I'm like, oh my God, oh God, no. (laughs) I was so content, right? Coming down and I remember her telling me, I'm pregnant, I'm pregnant, I'm pregnant, I can't believe it. And we were like, oh my God, you were absolutely amazing. Two, my wife thought it was two months. In fact, God was telling her it was gonna be two years. And then a month and a half goes by. And we just don't get one baby, we get two babies. And then a year goes by, I don't know if this is a blessing or a curse, but we'll go with it, blessing. We get two more babies, see, two, two years, we would have two babies, and then we would have another two babies. Think about how God takes the ash heap of our life and makes beautiful things. So we have to learn to take our complaints to God. And as we complain with God, not just at God, that's when God really begins to speak to us. Our hearts soften and we hear the Holy Spirit speak to us. Finally, number three, I think what we have to do, and this is what I've learned over the last few years as I've gone through some some health issues, is we have to repurpose. I get this from one pastor. We have to repurpose our suffering. We have to repurpose suffering, I'll say it this way, into the warmth of compassion. So there's, that means this, there's only two ways you can respond to suffering. One is turn into yourself, become a cynic, 
give up on life, just kind of just go with emotion, or you can turn outward and allow that suffering to be repurposed through the grace of God and begin to serve other people. When I was diagnosed as a, as a type one diabetic, guess what? My heart enlarged for those who were diabetic. I know what diabetics go through. I can talk to you for an hour and I can pray for you and I can be there for you. Why? Because I know what it's like to be a type one diabetic. Now, did God give me type one diabetes? No, but we can repurpose what we go through our sorrow. God can work through it and create beautiful things out of our suffering. I wouldn't know what people go through chronic. Some of you have chronic diseases. And what I've gone through is essentially this last year and a half is just when one chronic thing after another, I've gotten a multiplicity of doctors trying to figure out what's wrong with me. Here's the thing. I'm realizing that some of you, like a couple years ago, if you would have come up to me and said that you had a chronic disease, I'll, I'll be really honest. I, I would have been there for you. I would have listened, I would have prayed for you, but I really wouldn't have understood what you go through day in and day out and the experiences that you have and the lab work that you have and all the uncertainty that you go through. But now I understand that uncertainty and there's a grace on my life, right? A grace on my life to help those who go through different hard health issues to bring life and healing and hope. You see, God can take the betrayal that you experienced from a spouse and he can repurpose that so that you can bring healing to those who have been betrayed. God can take a certain health condition and I believe God can heal. Come on. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And there's so many stories of miracles and healings. But if you're going through something, a health challenge, and maybe God delays that healing, God can use that suffering so you can bring life and grace to those who are suffering through health issues. Come on, some of you, let's repurpose our anxiety. Let's repurpose our suffering. Let's repurpose that depression. Let's repurpose that suffering. I'm not trying to be insensitive. Let's fully understand that yes, God did not cause this. We're not trying to deny what we're going through, but by the grace of God and through his healing and through his voice and through his help, we can take what we're going through, allow God to bring healing in us so that God then can work through us to bring healing in the lives of other people. I'll say this and I, I close. God will not move outside of compassion. God will not move outside the warmth of compassion. I believe that if we want to move of God in our church and in, this, in the Treasure Valley and in our nation, in our generation, we have to allow Jesus to take our suffering and our sorrow, allow him to heal us, let God repurpose it so that he can bring life to the world. This world is broken. Come on. And this world needs broken people who have repurposed their suffering, who have connected their story to the larger story of Jesus, who've brought their complaint to God and have complained with God, opened their hearts to the Holy Spirit, and then let God take the ashes of their story, rewrite it, and make it beautiful. That is the good news of Jesus. Amen. Once you bow your heads, close your eyes. Father, I thank you for your presence here today. Lord, as we close, if you could take your hand, put it on your heart, I just ask that you just bring healing to your sons and daughters. Lord, we know some things don't work out. Sometimes we lose loved ones. Sometimes marriages do fail. But we believe 
in the mystery of the divine economy and how you work within creation, you make beautiful things out of the ugliness of our lives. And I pray that as our hands are on our heart today, that you would bring healing to us, bring healing to our minds, bring healing to our hearts, bring healing to our story. Some of us, some, some of us here today, we need healing from our past. You're living in shame. Lord, I pray healing over that. Some of us in our present, we're going through something really hard. Holy Spirit, I thank you, whoever that is, that you would come and you would bring comfort. I thank you, it's you and you alone that understands what every single person is going through right now. And I thank you that you would bring a word of, of grace, a word of healing and comfort. Those who are struggling about their, their future, Lord, they're, not, they're uncertain about future events and they don't know if, if there's any good coming down the road, I pray that you would bring comfort and strength and that you would fill whoever that might be in this room, you would fill their heart and their mind with your inexhaustible love for it's your love that casts out all fear. So I thank you. I declare this over this year, 2022, you make beautiful things out of the ashes of our lives. I thank you that we would experience that in Jesus' name. Lord, you would turn that health diagnosis into a beautiful story. Can I get an amen, church? You would take that chronic issue and you would turn it into a beautiful story. You would take that betrayal and rejection and turn it into a beautiful story. Lord, you bring healing to your sons and daughters. And Lord, as you bring healing to our hearts and our minds and our bodies and our past and our future and our present, I thank you that you would work through our lives to bring healing to those who are broken in our world. Our desire is to be conduits of your beauty in a world filled with shame and sorrow and war and disease and sickness. I thank you that the answer is found in King Jesus. And today it is our heart's desire to line up with Jesus. Everyone say Jesus. And we open up our lives to your healing power. And we thank you that your beauty would blaze into our souls. And Father, I thank you that we will learn to partner with you this year to bring the good news of Jesus to this city. In your name we pray. Keep your eyes um, close your heads bowed. If there's anyone in this room, you say, Chris, I need Jesus. Maybe you've walked with the Lord some, sometime in the past, but maybe you're just not walking with him. Maybe this is your first time. Maybe you've been coming for some time to this church and you're just like, I've really never made a decision to follow Jesus, but I want what you're talking about. I need Jesus to take the ashes of my life because there's a lot of it and I want him to make it beautiful. I want to put my trust in Jesus. I want to give my life to Jesus. I want him to create a Genesis week out of the chaos of my life today. If that is you, as your eyes are closed, your heads are bowed, I'm going to pray with you. If you could, if you want me to pray with you, you're just simply opening up your heart to the Holy Spirit for him to take over your life. It's amazing. This is the good news that Jesus will come and make beautiful things out of the ashes. If this is what you want, at the count of three, could you just raise your hand? I'll pray with you. One, two, three. Anyone like that? One, I see that hand. I see that hand. I see those hands. Two, three, four, five, six. I see those hands. Seven. I think eight. Nine. Anyone else? Come on. I think there's nine hands that are raised. Can we give Jesus a hand this morning? If you raised your hand, uh, take your hand, put it on your heart. Church would also like you to do the same thing. And then I want everyone to repeat this after me. Dear Jesus, I give you my life. I give you my story. And I ask that you create a Genesis week out of the chaos of my life. I put my trust in you. Forgive me of my sin. Make all things new. Make all things beautiful. In the mighty name of Jesus. And everyone said, Man, can you give Jesus a hand this morning? Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to give towards this ministry, learn more about our church and events, 
or are in need of prayer, please visit capitalchurch.co.